name. Amen. Please be seated. And children may be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Returning in the Old Testament this morning to read God's Word in Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We always read from the Old and the New Testament because we are two testament christians right we aren't just new testament christians we are two testament christians because we believe in the whole counsel of god and without the old we cannot understand the new and so these passages lord's day by lord's day help provide a foundation for our understanding and hopefully deepens and enriches our grasp of God's word. This morning, Isaiah 55 is our Old Testament reading, and we will read this brief chapter in its entirety. Let's pay close attention now, because this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be. 
cut off. Amen. Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. One of the interesting literary features that we have noted about this book is that while it contains a series of cycles divided into seven parts, for example, the seven-sealed scroll and the seven trumpets, and now we're working our way through the seven symbolic histories, between the sixth and the seventh element of each of those divisions, there is an interlude. For example, between the sixth and seventh seal of the scroll, we have chapter 7, with the gathering in of the multitude of God's people, the 144,000, those from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we had a much longer interlude that described for us the ministry of the church in these last days, the two witnesses that proclaim the word of God. This morning, as we come to these verses in chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, we come to the interlude between the 6th and 7th symbolic history. Now, this is much briefer, much shorter than the previous interludes, but it is nonetheless as significant, important for us to study this morning. We're going to read from the beginning of the chapter once again to get the context, to get the flow, and our focus this morning will be on Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13. Let's hear now God's word from chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth... No lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here 
is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now this morning, Will you grant us insight and understanding to what you have revealed to us? Will you grant the ministry of your spirit for the preaching and the hearing of your word? Will you grant unction so that the word of God may come to us as indeed you intended to come with power, with the strength of the Lord? We thank you that we can be assured this morning that your word does not return to you empty, but accomplishes its purpose and so move and work in each heart today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know the expression to throw in the towel? It comes from the sport of boxing. When a boxer can't face anymore when he can't bear the thoughts of going back into the ring when he can't take further pummeling from his fellow pugilist he tosses the towel into the ring to indicate he's done he surrenders he gives up he resigns himself to defeat Have you ever felt like throwing in the towel in some area in your life? Have you ever gotten to the point where you feel you just can't go on? You're defeated and you try to convince yourself it just doesn't really matter. You're done with this once and for all. Well, I think we've all been there at various times in our lives about various circumstances in our lives. We can get that way in ministry. And I'm not just talking about the ministry, those of us who are engaged in full-time service. I'm talking about the every member kind of ministry that we should be carrying out in the church. It can get discouraging. It can be disheartening. Serving others sometimes just doesn't seem worth it. I mean, it's it's just too frustrating. It's too time-consuming. It's too painful. It's too discouraging. And as for sharing the gospel, that that's just too daunting. And we're ready to give up. It comes to ministry. We say, "Well, I've been there, done that." got the souvenir towel and I'm ready to throw it in the ring because I just don't want to be beaten up anymore. It isn't difficult to get to that point, especially in this world that is so strongly opposed 
to gospel truth tellers. And yet, it is gospel truth tellers that this world so desperately needs. Men and women like you who believe in and are willing to speak the whole counsel of God. We saw the importance of that last Lord's Day when we looked at verses 6 through 11 in this chapter. The messages of the three angels that John saw flying overhead. We are summoned as the church in these last days to proclaim a message of hope to the world, this everlasting gospel. We're summoned to preach a message of victory that Babylon, all the the centers of secularism and sensuality will be brought down by the power of God in the end. And we are summoned to proclaim a message of doom that God brings his judgment, his everlasting judgment on the lost. This last message, this this somber message is a reminder that we and those whom we serve live in the hour of judgment. When the first angel proclaimed his eternal gospel, he said the hour of judgment has come. It has arrived because the judgment of God fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross and his death ushered in this era of redemptive history in which the world is rushing headlong toward that final day of judgment. It's in this era that we minister. This era when God's wrath is suspended over this world like the sword of Damocles. And soon, brothers and sisters, very soon that sword will be shaped into a scythe. And the Lord will harvest the earth. You and I are called to minister in the days when the final judgment looms on the horizon. And as that judgment looms on the horizon, as these cycles increase and move toward the end of each of the sevens that are listed in Revelation, we notice that the days grow darker and the suffering of the church grows more intense. And that the wickedness of man becomes more manifest and debauched. And as you and I are moving toward the last days of human history, and we see how difficult it is becoming both in corporate and individual ministry to proclaim the gospel, when we see the world increasingly hostile to the truth of God's word, when we see a world that has gone mad we can really be tempted to just throw in the towel. How are you and I supposed to be effective communicators of the glorious message of Jesus in circumstances like we're living in today? 
Shouldn't we just give up? I mean, do you want to be beaten up anymore? Do you want to be made fun of for loving Jesus and holding to his word? It's tempting to just throw in the towel. But in this brief interlude, the Lord offers us a great message of encouragement. The Lord encourages us to keep on keeping on as he summons us to serve with endurance and assurance. This morning, I want us to look at that two-pronged appeal. First of all, the Lord calls us to serve with endurance. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this call. If you look back in chapter 13 at verse 10, at the conclusion of that vision of the first beast, John writes, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Believers face all kinds of circumstances and difficulties in these last days, perhaps even a martyr's death. But John said, no matter what we face, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, with the day of judgment looming, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. What does it mean to endure? It means to be steadfast, to, to hold up under the pressure of the hour. Steadfastness, endurance calls for persistence. It calls for patience. It calls for a spirit-wrought tenacity that says, I will cling to Jesus and not let go. Now these calls to endurance appear not only here in Revelation 13, again in 14, but other places in the New Testament as well. Perhaps the most well-known of them is at the beginning of Hebrews 12 where the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily and closely clings to us and entraps us and, and makes us stumble. And let us run with endurance, he says, the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. And how do we do that? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We are called to endure through the endurance. And this is to be a characteristic of those who are mature in Christ. Paul in Titus 2 instructed his young protege to tell the older men in the congregation to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in what? In steadfastness, in endurance. The Lord often uses suffering 
and tribulation to work that in us. That isn't a pleasant thought to any of us. And when the suffering comes, we're ready to throw in the towel. But if we endure looking unto Jesus, then suffering and trials become the very means of building us in endurance and in faith. Suffering and trials become the means God uses to shape our Christian character, to be like his son. And this is Paul's point, isn't it, in Romans 5, when he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Sometimes you've got to think, Paul, you must be crazy, right? You rejoice in your sufferings. Well, Paul rejoiced not because he was a sadist, but Paul rejoiced knowing that suffering produces endurance. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's unbreakable chain of discipleship. And he's going to use every one of those areas in your life to bring you to maturity. Suffering to produce endurance, and endurance to produce character and character to produce hope. The poster child for this, of course, is Job, isn't it? James 5, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We admire people of endurance, don't we? We admire those who can keep on keeping on and they, they cross the line, the finish line at a marathon. Man, my hat's off to them. I admire someone who can endure through the race. And James says that's what we do. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard, haven't you, about the steadfastness of Job? But if Job is the Old Testament poster child for endurance... I'd submit to you that John is perhaps the New Testament poster child. Suffering on the Isle of Patmos, exile as an old man. He, he was not a teenager. He was not in his prime. But here is an elderly man in the last years of his life undergoing harsh conditions. And he writes in the first chapter of this book, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Folks, this call to endurance exists here because it is the need of the church in the last days. The beast dominates the culture. You don't need any argument from me to prove that, do you? It's clearly evident. The beast, the dragon inspired, satanically driven powers of this world dominate the culture. And we must not cave 
in to compromise our convictions. We're seeing it all around us. Not just in social organizations, but we are seeing people cave and compromise in the church. And this is why we must be steadfast. Who are the people of endurance? Who is it that's called here to be steadfast? The saints. The saints. Who are they? How do you get to be a saint? Do you, do you live a really, really good life, and then after you're dead, if you can perform some miracles, then, then the church will take you through a ceremony and you can become a saint? No, you don't become a saint because of what you are able to do. Believers are called saints because this title encapsulates their definitive sanctification. We, in the doctrine of salvation, talk about sanctification in a couple of ways. There is progressive sanctification, that ongoing growth in grace and holiness in the Christian life. But our Christian life begins with a definitive sanctification, whereby God, through his grace, redeems us, regenerates us, justifies us, adopts us into his family, and thereby sets us apart for himself as his own special possession. That's why you're a saint today. Because you have been sanctified by God. You were running from him. You didn't want anything to do with him. You liked your sin. You were comfortable in your sin. And he said, you're going to be mine. And he brought you to himself. Now you're his treasured possession. You're a saint. But that doesn't mean that being a saint has nothing to do with the way we live. Because in verse 12, John goes on to define or describe who the saints are. They are those who obey God. And not only do they keep his commandments, but they keep their faith in Jesus. Obedience to the word of God is one of the clearest signs in scripture of a true and living faith. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And James, of course, makes it clear in chapter 2 of his letter, you know, show, show me your faith without your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Those who believe in Christ obey him. We obey because when God sanctifies us and sets us apart for himself, there is a change that takes place in our fundamental disposition. It doesn't mean that we obey perfectly. Far from it. But our attitude and our aims are now different 
than they were before. But saints not only keep the commandments of the Lord, but they keep, let me give you a more literal translation here. The, the ESV is fine, but the, the literal translation is they keep the faith of Jesus. And I think that's important to let you hear that literal translation because of a double emphasis that that phrase has. Saints keep the faith of Jesus. The faith is, is that deposit of truth that God has given to the church. So the faith, for which Jude says we are to earnestly contend, includes the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he is God come in the flesh, that he has died and has been raised again from the dead. Every true believer keeps that faith. There, there's a core to Christianity that cannot be compromised. And that's why as we look across the spectrum, we see all kinds of churches with all kinds of labels, but if they hold to that core of the gospel, then they are true churches. They're our brothers and our sisters. But not only do the saints keep the faith of Jesus, but that, that little phrase of Jesus highlights the fact that he is the object of their faith. And that's why the ESV, by the way, translates it the way they do. They keep their faith in Jesus. In other words, we have an active trust in and reliance upon the Son of God. That's how you know a person is a saint. That's how you know this morning if you're a saint or not. In Jesus, as he is offered to you in the gospel. You may not be a theologian. You may not know very much. But you say, what I know about Jesus, I believe and I trust in him. And that faith is a growing ongoing concern when I was in college I used to do a lot of door to door evangelism and I remember a gentleman coming to the door one day and I began to talk to him a little bit and share the gospel with him and he looked at me and he was an older gentleman at the time I don't imagine uh, he was younger than in his 70s And he said to me, you know, I, I used to believe like you do. In fact, I used to be a pastor. But I don't accept any of that anymore. He was very kind toward me. He didn't berate me for coming to his door. He understood. He didn't try to talk me out of my faith. But I walked away. I was sad. And I was troubled. Here I was, a college student, majoring in biblical studies, wanting to go into the ministry like he had gone to school and been in the ministry. And 
And I ask myself, will I one day turn away? Perhaps you've asked yourself that question. How do you persevere and endure in the faith? Especially when there are assaults on every hand. You simply believe in Jesus now. That's the answer. If you're here this morning and you've never become a Christian, you've, you've never put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, then, then you are to believe right now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And if you're sitting here this morning and you say, wow, I've walked with the Lord 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Then you, dear brother, dear sister, are to believe on Jesus now. Because now is the acceptable time. And now is the day of salvation. Don't rest on a past experience of Christ. Don't say, well, I used to be a devoted Christian. I used to walk close to God. I used to exercise faith every day in Him. No, that isn't good enough. Don't rest on a past experience. But trust in Jesus today. That's the way to endure. Arthur Samus, Presbyterian minister in Indiana, captured it best, perhaps, when he wrote, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's the call to the saints who are called to endure. But not only does the Lord issue us here a call to serve with endurance, but he also calls us to serve with assurance. Look at verse 13 with me. What is this assurance that he offers us? It's the consolation of knowing that those who die in the Lord are blessed. Living in this world filled with beasts, living in a world where we know that those who are devoted to him and, and who receive his mark are going to perish forever and forever, it, it becomes a great source of comfort, doesn't it? To, to know that no matter what happens to us, whether we meet the death of a martyr or we die of old age, we are safe and secure in Jesus. Look at the basis of this assurance. How do we know that passing from this world to the next is the pathway of blessing? Well, it's because God, the Holy Spirit, has told us as he's spoken through the words of Holy Scripture. That's how we know. John heard a voice from heaven the first time you hear a voice from heaven in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 4. 
when Jesus, or rather chapter 3, right before chapter (laughs) 4, at the end of chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends and a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 1, John heard behind him a loud voice commanding him to write the visions that he was about to receive. He described it as, as a voice like the Son of Man. So we have the voice of the Father from heaven in Matthew 3. We have the voice of Jesus from behind John in Revelation 1. And now as we come to chapter 14, he once again hears a voice, this time coming from heaven, but this voice that commands him to speak or to write is a voice that speaks in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. John, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And the Spirit speaks and agrees. Yes, blessed are they. Though it's not the main point of this passage. Verse 13 is really part and parcel of our doctrine of Holy Scripture. That what is written under the direction of God is nothing less than than the living voice of the Spirit speaking to us. And that's why we can have this assurance. Because we know God is telling us these things. This isn't John's imagination. This isn't what the pastor came up with this week so he would have something to say. No, this is the living word of God. And what is the essence of this assurance? Blessed, blessed are the dead. Really? Are the dead blessed? I mean, there's so many good things in this life. There's so many joys. Family and friends and loved ones. Beautiful sunsets, delicious food, so many things that, that make life so rich and varied and enjoyable. Could those who die be blessed? Yes, if they die in the Lord. That's the key. Because you see, those who die without the Lord, the smoke of God's wrath for them goes up forever and forever. Paul would chime in with John. He wrote in Philippians chapter 1, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I wonder if you can say that this morning. For to me, to live is Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my life. He is my all in all. He is my hope. If you can say that, then your death will be gain. 
because blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Why why are they blessed? Because they cease from their labors. Those who die outside of Christ, we're told back in verse 11, rest not day nor night. But for all eternity, they labor under the weight and curse of sin. But those who die in Christ experience that weight lifted and enter into an eternal Sabbath. And they await the day of resurrection and the new creation. People often ask, what are are we going to do in heaven? What are we going to do in the new heavens and the new earth? And of course, you know the popular depiction of floating around on clouds and plucking harps. And Sounds kind of boring, doesn't it? Will we labor in the new creation? I have no doubt we will. Just like Adam in the garden, we will cultivate We will shape and create culture. But without the burden of the curse. So our labor will be rest. Our work will be joy. That's why those who die in the Lord are blessed. They rest from their labors. They rest from persecution and turmoil and toil in this world. But there's a second reason here. Those who die in the Lord are blessed because their works follow them. When C.H. Spurgeon preached on this text, he reminded his congregation, and I remind you this morning, that your works do not precede you into heaven to make a way for you. Only Jesus can open the gates of glory. And neither do your works accompany you to be a source of security and comfort. That comes from the ministry of the Spirit. But your works follow you as a reward when the Father says, well done. Our works follow us into heaven. But they may not immediately follow us. They may bear fruit in years and decades and even centuries to come. After graduating from the Western Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Calvin Wilson Mateer took a call to pastor the Presbyterian Church of Delaware, Ohio. It was there that he met Julia Brown, daughter of one of the elders in the church. Calvin and Julia were married. And a couple of years later, they were able to pursue their calling and their dream to serve as missionaries in China. 
York on July the 3rd, 1863, and after arduous months at sea, they arrived in China in mid-December of that year. They made their way to Tingchao in the Shantung province to a place known as Pinglai City today, the hometown of our brother Wayne. So think about that, from Ohio to Ping Lai, from Ping Lai to Ohio. <laughs> and there they served. The Mateers were not warmly received. There was great hostility. People threw human waste at them to show their disgust and opposition. But Calvin and Julia endured. And for 46 years, they served Christ in China. Dr. Mateer was known for his work as chairman of the translation committee that produced the Chinese Union version, Bible version still being used today. Calvin and Julia started the Ting Chao College, the first institution of higher learning, modern institution in China. It is now Shingdong University, still exists. Julia died on February 18, 1898. Just think about that. It was 126 years ago today. Today. Calvin followed her a decade later, passing away in late September of 1908. The Chinese Union version was not completed until 1919, 11 years after his passing. And though Calvin and Julia had labored long and hard to teach and to spread the gospel, revival did not come to the Shangtung district until 1927, another 19 years after his passing, nearly three decades after Julia had died. But when the revival came, it lasted for a decade until 1937, just before World War II. You see, Calvin and Julia labored with endurance and died with assurance. And their works followed them. You share scripture with your neighbor <laughs> and she just brushes it off. You send Christian books to your relatives and you figure they probably never read them. And it gets discouraging. And you're tempted to throw in the towel. But remember the promise of God that just as rain comes from heaven and waters the earth so that it brings forth a harvest, God's word goes forth and accomplishes his purpose. And nothing ever done for Jesus is wasted effort. So go.
and labor on and work with endurance and with assurance that your works will follow you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in this interlude to call us to serve you with steadfastness and with hope. Work your grace and faith in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name.